The last time the Senate convened, we had just reclaimed the Capitol from violent criminals who tried to stop Congress from doing our duty. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. And they tried to use fear and violence to stop a specific proceeding of the first branch of the federal government, which they did not like. But we pressed on. We stood together and said an angry mob would not get veto power over the rule of law in our nation, not even for one night. That was Republican leader Mitch McConnell speaking on the floor of the Senate Tuesday, rebuking not just President Trump for spreading lies about the election and inciting a mob, but other powerful people, unmistakably a reference to some members of his GOP caucus, most especially Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. What should happen to Cruz and Hawley after they pushed demonstrable untruths about election fraud in the days leading up to the January 6th attack? Should they be held accountable, and in what form? We'll discuss with former Democratic Senator Al Franken, and then we'll talk to cyber sleuth John Scott Railton, who has been working day and night to identify the individuals who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, while the FBI attempts to answer the crucial question, was the attack the result of a combustible mob that spontaneously got out of control, or was it a conspiracy that was planned beforehand? We'll discuss on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So first of all, we should say a fond farewell to our introduction, which is sort of a cavalcade of presidential lies leading up to Donald Trump. We will have to change the intro starting tomorrow when we have a new president of the United States who at least as president, because he hasn't been president yet, hasn't told us any lies as president. But I have to say, McConnell's remarks are, I found, pretty extraordinary. Who would have ever thunk that in the final days of the Trump presidency, it would close with Mitch McConnell, of all people, accusing Donald Trump of telling lies? Well, there are a couple of ways of, of looking at this. One way is, as Tip O'Neill famously said, all politics is local, and it took a mob to uh, attack the Congress and hunt down members of Congress uh, to kidnap them or potentially kill them, um, as a lot of people think was, at least for some of those people, the plan for Mitch McConnell to kind of get religion on all of this. Um, you know, there you did notice there were some changes in his outlook even before January 6th. He did give that speech on the floor 
about the yeah the, the, the morning the of January sixth when That's he right. made it clear they were there to certify the election and not stu- right. substitute the Senate's or the Congress's will over that of the American people. Right. He said it was uh, it, it would be the most important vote of his career. Then you know we saw after January sixth the. Um, leaks in the New York Times and other outlets uh, that he was pleased that uh, the Democrats were pursuing impeachment, that he believed that Donald Trump had likely committed impeachable offenses. So clearly uh, there was a significant shift uh, taking place. Too little, too late, a lot of people will say. But I, I think what it is, and forget about what it says about, you know, Mitch McConnell's soul. I think it, you know, this is this is someone who is a very shrewd politician. And I think what it says is that his judgment is that Donald Trump is fizzling, that he is not going to have the kind of uh, power and influence uh, once he's left office as he's had since he's been president. And uh, whether he's right or not, I don't know, but I think it bears, you know, watching and noting. But it does also support the idea that, uh, as was reported last week, McConnell is open to voting for the conviction of Donald Trump. We'll see right. if he'll go that far. But um, but that is the linchpin. If he does go that far, then I think Donald Trump will likely be impeached because I think that that is what will take McConnell has enormous sway within the Republican caucus. And I think however he ends up voting is going to tell us how most Republicans, uh, senators will vote. So that's something that- Of course, uh, we don't know when that impeachment trial is actually going to take place and how long it will be. It's also not clear who will be Donald Trump's lawyer at uh, the trial well, since it's apparently now, uh, it can't be Rudy Giuliani because be he's a witness because he's a fact witness to the case. Uh, Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, has taken himself out. The folks who helped defend him last time, I think the only one who's still on board is uh, Alan Dershowitz, but he's not a trial lawyer. He's an appellate lawyer who will make constitutional arguments. So uh, could be could be the team of DeGeneva and Tunsing. <laughs> Right. <laughs> or or maybe he asked for a public defender since he can't get anybody else. Maybe he'll qualify for a public defender because I think <laughs> exactly. he's in serious. I think he's in serious financial trouble. Yeah. And add on top of that, you know, charges he might get from Cyrus Vance in, uh, in New York and the attorney general there. So one of those great old Fifth Street lawyers from D.C. Superior Court. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, speaking of which, some of these people getting arrested by the feds uh, certainly uh, might go- be going that route um, uh, as we speak. The Justice Department Department has just filed charges against this guy, Thomas Caldwell from Virginia, who was um, one of the leaders of the Oath Keepers, a uh, militia group. And what's significant about this is they say these are conspiracy charges and that he was conspiring with others to help direct elements of those who are attacking the Capitol. So that gets to the question we're going to be talking about with John uh, Scott Ralton about the degree to which this uh, attack was coordinated and pre-planned. There's a lot more we need to learn before we can reach strong conclusions on that. But this arrest is part of it. Yeah, uh, that's a significant, I think it's a significant development because this question of whether uh, this was a, an organized conspiracy. Not not to say that you know, some of it wasn't spontaneous, but the extent to which there was planning, premeditation, organization, 
suggests that this is, isn't an isolated case. There is a movement out there. And one last thing on the Oath Keepers is they are known for recruiting ex-members of the military and law enforcement. And that is a, a worrisome trend because we've seen a lot of the people who have been arrested already in the January 6th assault were people who came out of uh, particularly the military. All right. Well, lots to talk about. So let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us the former senator from Minnesota, Al Franken. Before that, illustrious career in comedy, including at Saturday Night Live, and now the host of Al Franken Podcast. Did I get that right, Senator? Well, close. It's the Al Franken Podcast. The Al Franken You need an article but it to was, start that sentence. It was hard to blow that. <laughs> yeah, and, and I managed to. So there you go. So, you know, look. But you did. Yeah, but I did. Uh, not for the first time or the last time, I can assure you. All right. The last time we spoke... It was, I think, the second week in March, and we were next to each other at the gym on the bicycle. And I remember talking about COVID's coming. Will we ever be able to do this again? That was the last time I was in a gym. How about you? Me too. Me too. That was right. We were right at that point, and we were saying, like, gee, Maybe we won't be here <laughs> again. And, and we were prophetic. <laughs> right. Well, no, we weren't, you know, we're old. And we yeah. are, <laughs> no one was impressed happen. with the two guys <laughs> yeah. on the bikes. Yeah, no. All right. Speaking of old guys, I want to start out with Mitch McConnell, who just spoke on the Senate floor. He is uh, who said that the mob on January 6th was, quote, provoked by the president and other powerful people. Quote, the mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. They tried to use fear and violence to stop a specific proceeding of the first branch of government. This is your old nemesis, Mitch McConnell. What do you make of what he's saying here? Well... He's right. I mean, he's absolutely right. Have you ever said he was right before? I think so. <laughs> I can't remember, but <laughs> okay. I probably have. No, he's right. I mean, this was, but there are people that are part of his caucus. You could say 13 of them. You could say clearly Hawley, clearly Cruz, clearly Ron Johnson, who were spreading these lies that. You know, in their statement, they said uh, there's been an unprecedented number of allegations <laughs> of uh, fraud in the election. And yet yeah, that's true. And they made them. And there is an unprecedented number of bogus allegations. And that's what they made. And they know that. They knew that. Ron Johnson conceivably didn't know that. But Cruz... And Hawley did. And I'm talking not just education, but IQ as well here in making that distinction. But they knew this. And they need to be, there needs to be an ethics investigation by an, uh, an independent investigation. And they need to be interviewed. Uh, their staff needs to be interviewed under oath. 
whoever their staff had contact with. They need to see their emails. This is what led to this. It's one thing for Donald Trump to say the election was stolen because, of course, he's going to say that. We know that. He even said the election was, there was fraudulence in the Hillary election. There was 3 million votes, illegals. And of course he's going to say that. But when you have all these members of Congress, and I'm talking about the 147 or whatever they are, the Republicans in the House, those people should all be investigated. They should all have all of their contacts with outside people investigated, and they should undergo ethics trials. What do you think a, an investigation would find? I mean, is The suggestion is that they are as responsible for inciting the riot, the attack on the Congress that happened on January 6th. And do you think that expulsion is the right sanction or criminal investigation? What do you think this should go? I think both. I think there should be criminal investigation. There would be hearings. There should be hearings. What were they saying? Is there any evidence that they were saying, look, we know, you know, we know what the president is saying isn't true. And boy, you ask their communications director, you are under oath now. You're testifying under penalty of perjury. Did Ted Cruz know that these allegations were false? And we're interviewing everyone in your office, by the way. And we're interviewing everyone you talk to, by the way. And if the answer to that is yes, yeah, expulsion. And of course the answer to that is yes. How can you not know that? Look, that... Sounds great in theory, but in a 50-50 Senate, I really wonder how practical it is that you could convene an ethics committee investigation that would go, that would become public on that. You know, one alternative way of doing this, and I'd like to get your take, it wouldn't have quite the, perform the, uh, the, the role of justice here, but yeah. um, what, if Imagine you took, that. What, what if you took... Cruz up on his original recommendation for a emergency commission to investigate these allegations. Not 10 days, because that was preposterous. There was no way you could do it. But 100 days in which you had a bipartisan select committee. You kept the crazies off. And they looked at these and almost we know exactly what they'd conclude. They'd come up with I would think, a unanimous report that says all of these allegations are bullshit. And you could do that within three months. You'd have Republican buy-in. And I can't think of a better way to marginalize Cruz and Hawley than to have a unanimous Senate report saying what you were telling people was complete bullshit. What do you think about that idea? I'm not against that at all. I'm for that. Good idea. But I'm telling you, these guys were responsible for what happened in the Capitol. And this, you can get an ethics investigation with 50 and Schumer in control, if Schumer will do it. And why not? You saw what happened there. This is incredibly dangerous, and they'll do it again. Yeah. Just to put this in some context, 
you asked the question, why not? And this is not necessarily an answer to why not. But what do you do when we're living in a society now and a political culture where literally millions and millions of people, A, believe that the election was stolen, B, believe in crazy conspiracy theories, including QAnon and all sorts of other disinformation and conspiracy theories. The answer may be that accountability is the most important thing. You have to do things to make sure that people in the Senate you know, don't act with impunity. But that also could backfire, and it could reinforce the views of so many of these people in the country that they are being attacked by the other side. Um, I guess the question I, I'm asking is, how do you deal with that larger fundamental problem of the truth being under assault and people believing things that are demonstrably untrue, but not just a mar some marginal group of people. We're talking, you know, millions and millions of people. So how do you deal with that? Well, this is the biggest problem facing us, of course, which is the two universes of information. And that is a very existential problem in this country right now. But you can't have U.S. senators taking action to overturn an election. And that's what they did. And if you are saying, oh, we throw our hands up, uh, some people won't believe it. You can't have that. You can't allow the active attempt to overthrow our democracy. And that's exactly what they did. If they had their way, we would have gone to not the 100-day commission that Michael was talking about. We would have gone to the hand-picked commission, the 10-day commission, which would have then thrown it to the state legislatures, the Republican state legislatures of Georgia and Pennsylvania and Arizona and Michigan. And you would have had Donald Trump being inaugurated. Except today. that none of those legislatures challenged the results, the, the certification within their states. Even the Republican-controlled legislature in Pennsylvania didn't do it. The Republican-controlled legislature in Wisconsin didn't do it. They didn't do it in Georgia. They didn't <laughs> try to stop the election of Joe Biden when they could have. I think you underestimate <laughs> their ability to grab power when they can. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they were they were abiding then by the law. But if they're getting the signal that Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and however many it would have taken, think about how many it would have taken. But they tried, didn't they? Yeah, well, they, they made did. that attempt, didn't but they? But look, one one problem with your Senate Ethics Committee investigation, I just checked, as of now, the chairman of the commission is Lankford from Oklahoma, who voted to object to the certification. He was one of them. So he can hardly preside over an investigation into Cruz and Hawley for doing what he did. Now, he has since apologized to his black constituents in Oklahoma, says he didn't realize that the contested votes were almost always in African-American communities. How but do you still, not realize he was that? Before, what's that? How do you not realize that? No, I, I, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, but I'm he, not disagreeing with you on that. I'm just saying he, he would that he can himself. hardly be the guy to investigate Cruz and Hawley for no, doing you what have he an voted independent, for. Mike, you have it, Michael. I said an independent investigation. 
So you have to you don't create have, a committee. You don't have uh, coons <laughs> and, and shots and those guys do this investigation. Yeah. You have a, a real investigation. Yeah. And the, he would have to recuse himself because of that. But I mean, yeah. how do you not know what you're challenging is basically if you're saying, you know what? You didn't really win in Georgia. You didn't really win in Pennsylvania. You didn't really, who do you think they're discounting? What votes do you think they're discounting? Yeah. Why do you think senators like Ted Cruz and Hawley acted the way they, they acted? Is it just about power and political survival, or do you think there's something darker and more malevolent at work? I mean, are they autocrats? I mean, what is your view of them just as, you know, citizens? <laughs> I don't know Hawley, but judging by his actions, I would put him in a similar category as Cruz. Let's see. Okay, you know, I probably like Ted Cruz more than almost any of my other colleagues like Ted Whoa. Cruz. Whoa, you just I, got a headline out of this podcast. <laughs> Wait a minute, there's a finish to that. And I No, hate- no, no, let's cut it there. Thank you, Senator. We really appreciate <laughs> talking to you. And we got some tweets to get out right now. <laughs> but it's true what I said. But I, I said I like probably like Ted Cruz more than most of my other colleagues like Ted Cruz. And I hated Ted Cruz, hated. Look, I just heard from his roommate in uh, law school, or at least my podcast did, because with my podcast, we're selling an I Hate Ted Cruz mug and an I Hate Ted Cruz pint glass. And they've been selling out right and left. And he can't get one. He was Ted Cruz's first year roommate in law school. So this is the story that I used in my book, Al Frank, my ironically titled Al Frank and John of the Senate. This is, uh, this is the story told me, the first week of law school there at Harvard Law. As you know, Ted went to Princeton, a major Ivy. He puts up on the Bolton boards, a flyer that says he wants to put together a study group and he puts up no minor ivies. Now, you I, you could put me on a desert island for 100 years. I could not come up with something that would tell my other, my new classmates at the law school I'm going to go to for the next three years. What a dick could you not are, say, right? yeah. I am the world's biggest asshole. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No yeah. minor ivies. <laughs> Now, that's three words. <laughs> that's Ted yeah. Cruz. Yeah. He is, it's psychopathic. A man of the people, a populist who has inherited the uh, Trump populist mantle. But these guys are power hungry. These yeah. guys want to be president. They want the power that comes of that. They want the adulation or whatever they want, whatever people who are driven like that want. They want it, and they're, but they're, you know, they're people. Everyone who wants to be president is probably a certain kind of narcissist in a way, but there's FDR who saved the country. <laughs> and then there's, there's and then there's, and then there's Donald Trump. Right. That's kind of the range. 
<laughs> Clearly, the, the best solution to this, to, to the problem that you're citing here, is not waiting around and then you know holding trials and expelling people or getting them criminally investigated. What we need are incentives built into the system that or disincentives for the kind of conduct that you're citing here. So treason. you spent you, you disincentives spent... for treason. Okay, <laughs> you would think those Let's exist see. already. What would be a disincentive? <laughs> the death penalty. Is <laughs> <one>. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Hmm. That would be good. That'd be a start. I mean, what else was this? They're trying to overturn an election. What's more basic than that in America? But half the Senate, I mean, you know, I mean, oh. you know, or the, you know, most of the Republican caucus tried to do that. So that's- In the House, not the Senate. I mean, I'm sorry. In the uh, House. In the House, yeah. Uh, so that's a big problem. So what do we yeah. do about it? We have investigation and find out what happened and find out who is contacting the goons that attacked the Capitol and prosecute them. But this started with the big lie. This started because, as Mitch McConnell said, the mob was fed these lies. And the mob was fed these lies by a significant percentage of our body politic. So that's and the larger there, problem. What I'm saying is, is that you, you shouldn't incentivize lying and you should punish it, especially when it's criminal. And to incite this kind of civil disorder, an attack of, and with the intention of doing violence to Congress, they were going to kill members of Congress, okay? This should not be like, well, okay, you know, you got a 50-50 Senate, that's gonna be hard. <laughs> yeah, they, they plotted to take over the, the government and uh, let's see. And in doing so, they said, you know, they gave people the message to go in and kill other members of Congress. Let me see. Oh, no, 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 we shouldn't probably investigate that. Now, <laughs> like, oh, let's move on from that then. <laughs> All right. The House has impeached Trump. He's leaving office tomorrow. So it's now pretty clear that any impeachment trial will be of a ex-president, not a current president. Yeah. It is still very uh, fuzzy as to how this is going to work how the Senate could pull this off when it's got so much on its plate right now and, you know, continued doubts and ambivalence among a lot of people about the wisdom of doing this, especially if you can't be assured you're going to get 17 Republicans to vote for convict because then the outcome will be the same as last time, a headline that will be Trump acquitted. So your thoughts on the impeachment trial, should it go forward? And if so, how and how soon? Well, oddly enough, that's not for me to decide. But I would say I would I would have an impeachment trial. I don't think there's any rush. The whole purpose of this basically would be so the guy can't run again. And also, I do believe that the more they we could find out about this, the better before we have the trial. Now, in 
writing the articles of impeachment as quickly as they did. We didn't have that. I think we have enough. I think you have enough to, for... Uh, well, but do you have enough to get 17 Republican senators to go along? You may not. You may not. Uh, and then is it is it in your mind, you know, what's the what's the downside of having another impeachment vote that doesn't result in a conviction? You'll be surprised at how much it'll weigh on the conscience of those who didn't vote of the who didn't, you know, who didn't vote for conviction on the Republican side. That's I'm sarcastic. That's I'm, I'm yeah, being sarcastic. I was say. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Wait a second. Was, was... You, you've mastered the deadpan. Uh, something I'm sure you've you've you've, you've mastered being gullible. Yeah, <laughs> to the deadpan. <laughs> uh, I, look, I think you have to do it. <laughs> look what this guy did. Yeah, you have to do this, right? And I don't know whether you do it like okay. To lunch impeachment, <laughs> then lunch, mm -hmm. then uh, the COVID stimulus package, then tomorrow morning impeachment, then lunch, mm. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, judges or not judges, uh, uh, confirmations of uh, actual competent professional people who are experienced and know how the government works instead of the crooked cronies that this guy put in the government. I, I want to read you something that um, David Vondrelli, who's a columnist in The Post, wrote about a week or so ago. And get me your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Allowing a second impeachment process to spill past Inauguration Day, though it might please the gods of justice among mortals, would serve only Trump. The only thing he has left to lose is relevance. He feeds on controversy. Attention is his oxygen. Democrats can turn off the life support. Let his future bankruptcies play out in the business pages. Let his conspiracy theories molder on grocery store racks. Let his plea bargains be reported in the second or third segment of the evening news until one fine day when we ask each other, whatever happened to Donald Trump? Democrats alone, no one else, can keep Trump front and center past January 20. The public voted for an end to the Trump show. Give them what they want. Okay, well, that's his opinion. That's what he gets paid for, evidently. And that's a good opinion, I guess. Uh, I, I think it's important <laughs> when a president stokes a rebellion, like, <laughs> that he should be impeached. Right. But I didn't I didn't get paid for that at all. <laughs> yeah, but you got exposure on skullduggery, which is <laughs> well, wait worth a its yeah. weight in gold. Cha-ching, cha-ching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to just go back to the argument that you're making uh, to expel Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and, and perhaps more than that. Do you... Because I'm not hearing a lot of people making that argument right now in, in, in the Senate. You're, you seem like a little bit of a, a voice in the wilderness. I could be wrong about this. Maybe you've heard from other senators who are who are making the same case. But are you surprised by that? Are you surprised that uh, your ex-colleagues in the Senate hasn't, haven't risen up against Ted Cruz and, and Josh Hawley? They don't surprise me. And, and why, why do you suppose there isn't more of a chorus for taking that kind of, of action. I mean, you know, you, you do describe the stakes of this in a very compelling way. So what is it about 
the political culture that, you know, others aren't pushing for the same thing? I just, I don't want to actually go into it any further. I don't have, I don't have a lot of respect for a number of them. You know, I would say that McConnell went pretty far in those uh, remarks uh, we started out this uh, interview with. He said, you know, the mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. Who else would he be talking about than his fellow Republican senators, Cruz, Hawley, and the rest, who were perpetuating these lies? I don't think he'd be terribly unhappy to get rid of Cruz and Hawley myself. I mean, those are pretty safe seats. You know, they have Republican governors. I think he wouldn't be so upset if those guys were gone. How's the Senate going to work 50-50? Well, it'll it'll be, uh, you know, we will have the majority. And that's a good thing. Boy, is that a good thing. Thank God. Because now he'll be able to get his judges confirmed. And now he'll be able to get his executive appointments confirmed. And again, it'll be a, an administration that's full of people that are that have expertise and have experience. And Joe Biden is not FDR, but he's he is Joe Biden. And he knows his way around the federal government. And he has appointed people with experience and people who are incredibly able. And that's what we need right now. And I, I, I really think that uh, he's going to try to bring people together as hard as this is. And you're right about the moment we're in, in terms of the two universes of information. But I do think that this is as good as, I mean, thank God we got the 50. And we're going to be able to, I think, I hope the American people will see what it's like when you, you have people who know what they're doing and who care what they're, about the, what they're doing and are, that every day isn't about some weird friggin' thing you said on Twitter, but instead is about tackling, getting people inoculated, getting our public health system in order so that we're testing people and that people know to wear masks. My God, we're going to hit 500,000. This, this was criminal. And, you know, that, you know, we're, there's going to be executive orders tomorrow to rejoin Paris. We, we have, you know, someday my grandchildren are going to say, Grandpa, you're in the U.S. Senate. Why didn't you do anything about climate change? And also, why are you still alive 50 years from now? They're going to say that. And I'll say, well, because of unbelievable advances in science that were made during the Biden administration. And it's going to be great to see a competent government again. So I'm glad that we have the 50 because that really is what enable will enable us to do that. Or when I say us, <laughs> I meant uh, the Biden administration. But it is the case that you still, for most legislation, will need a supermajority. Um, That's right. The filibuster. I don't know that there's a, a significant chance that that the Democrats can get rid of the filibuster with a 50-50 Senate. Do you think that that's something that uh, 
that should happen now that they should push to eliminate the filibuster? No, they won't be able to do that. So don't try it. I mean, but there is reconciliation and you guys know what that is. And eventually I do believe that we're going to get some kind of reconciliation package and you know, be able to accomplish stuff through that. In fact, the ACA, because Scott Brown won in January of, of uh, 10, we then had 59 and the House passed its own bill and we had to pass the ACA through reconciliation. So you can do big things through reconciliation. It's not as easy as when you have 60. Will uh, Joe Manson uh, be the power broker in the Senate? He will have a lot. Yeah, I think Joe will have a lot of power. And won't uh, that put some pretty sharp restrictions on uh, what uh, Biden can get through? Just on coal. <laughs> yeah, well, oh, it's we kind of a big part of climate change, isn't it? Coal, coal gasification, uh, yeah. there'll be uh, storage, CO2, <laughs> sequestration. Yeah. That's going to be, people, oh, we're going to have billions sunk into that. It doesn't I've heard people work. Say, people, I've heard people say they might even pave the streets of Wheeling, West Virginia with gold. <laughs> no, they'll pave it with coal. <laughs> this is when we need this is a time we'd need lyndon johnson to weigh in on uh, and, and robert bird to yeah, put, putting some pressure on uh mansion so realistically how much do you think uh you know biden has a pretty ambitious agenda but given the makeup of the senate given you know that you, you it's a the barest of bare majorities how much do you think he'll be able to get through. Again, you know, I hope that there is some understanding among Republicans. For example, they lost Georgia in no small part because they didn't pass a COVID relief package. They, they have to know people are hurting. They may not care, but they care if, about getting reelected. So we have to do some really important and big things. And if they want to stop everything, and Mitch McConnell is really good at that, he filibustered more executive appointments during, uh, that's when you could filibuster executive appointments during Obama than, than had been filibustered in the, in the entire previous history of the country. He will try to stop things that, that hurt the people who sponsor him, which is, you know, the oligarchy, the well-to-do. But I, I also believe that we'll be able to get stuff done. And I don't, obviously, not as much as we'd be able to do if we had 60. Well, there's uh, Franken's lament. <laughs> we'll get as much as we can done, but not as much as we, if we had more. Yep. But I want to thank you. <laughs> <laughs> for joining us, and uh, I hope one day to see you at the gym again. God knows when it'll be. but uh, Well, you'll have to probably come to the gym in New York or Minnesota because I'm not uh, going to be with you. You've had it with Washington. Well, what happened was I had two grandchildren in D.C., and they moved. So now I, and I also have two grandchildren in New York. So okay. we moved there. We're kind of following the grandchildren. All right. 
And so that's right, what we're wow. doing. But listen, <laughs> uh, this has been fun. I've been taping just the part, the Isakoff part where he uh, screwed spaced up, so, yeah. out yeah. just so that I can uh, bargain yeah. with you not to use it. <laughs> ah, this sounds very Trumpian to me. <laughs> very transactionally Trumpian, right? Trying to get some leverage. Um, all right, we'll see. Okay. All right, thanks a lot. We now have with us John Scott Railton, a senior researcher at the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto's Monk School. John, welcome to Skullduggery. Good to be here. You have been tracking the folks who were at the January 6th rally on Capitol Hill uh, and trying to uh, figure out who they are, where they are, and what they were up to. Tell us about what you've been doing and what you've been finding. Well, I think like a lot of people, watching what was happening on January 6th was shocking and upsetting. I had spent a couple of months tracking the Stop the Steal movement trying to understand who they were, where their funding was coming from, who was driving their online traffic. And it, boy, was it a weird rabbit hole. But I kind of felt like the movement was pointed at the Capitol and really was interested to understand what was going to happen. And then we saw. And very quickly, I kind of decided that I wanted to figure out a specific image, which was an image of a guy colloquially known as Zip Tie Guy, now known as Eric Munchell, who was seen hopping a railing in the press gallery in the Senate, holding a bunch of zip ties disguised to the nines. And we should point out zip ties are sort of plastic handcuffs, as it were, or can they can be used well, for that and, purpose. Yeah, and plastic handcuffs sound kind of like something in, you know, a really dystopian kid's playset. Actually, you know, tactical restraints or temporary restraints, these are zip tie handcuffs. So they're used by police to restrain people in like a riot situation. And the only way to get him off is to cut him with bolt cutters. Tell us about this guy that you were tracking, who you see, who you find with the zip ties. Yeah, so I'd seen this, this now iconic picture of this guy totally disguised in black, hopping a railing with um, a fistful of flexicuffs, sometimes called zip tie handcuffs. And I wanted to know who is he and what was his plan? And so I just decided to jump right on Twitter and start showing my work trying to identify the patches that he was wearing and also solicit the help of people on Twitter to try to get a better understanding of what he might be wearing. And boy, did things explode from there. It turned out a lot of people were looking at those images and trying to find out more information. And many of them chimed in with really helpful clues. And in the course of a couple of days, we wound up walking him in footage all the way out, <laughs> discovered him walking up the steps of the Capitol with his mom, eventually paid a bunch of money for some uh, rights to AP pictures, got some high resolution pictures, and eventually through a kind of a convoluted chain, made our way to footage of him having a candid and relaxed chat that evening, sitting with his mother in the lobby of the um, Grand Hyatt in downtown DC. And from there, it was just a hop, skip and a jump. A bunch of people figured out who he was and um, we identified him. And what happened? Did you report this to the FBI? Was has he been arrested? Are there sure. Charges? So as a you know as a, as a researcher who works on security and privacy, you know we have kind of complicated relationships with different governments. But in this case, it seemed like the 
only appropriate thing to do was to make sure that the name of this individual, because at the time, you know, it wasn't clear if this was a kidnap plot, um, would be reported to the FBI. At the same time, during that process, a second gentleman also carrying temporary restraints surfaced. And we now know him as uh, Lieutenant Colonel Larry Brock of Texas. When I identified him, I reached out to Ronan Farrow because I felt very strongly that there was a risk that by identifying these people without total confidence, it would model the wrong behavior um, and could potentially lead to a lot of Twitter speculation. And so Ronan and his team of fact checkers at The New Yorker and Diggers burrowed their way through and were actually able to reach Lieutenant Colonel or retired Lieutenant Colonel Brock and get him to admit that he'd been there and spin a bit of a yarn about what he was doing holding those things at that moment. John, I just uh, you started to do this, but just to sort of put this a little bit in, in context, what Citizen Lab does exactly, uh, it's a kind of, I mean, the, the research that you do is, is kind of akin to crowdsourcing investigations. But, you know, there are, as I think you just mentioned, there are some inherently some risks involved, uh, which you're very careful about. But just for the benefit of our listeners, explain what Citizen Lab does and what you do and how you do these kinds of investigations. And then we, we want to yeah. talk about what you've learned in a broader sense about the January 6th operation. Mm-hmm. So Citizen Lab is based at the University of Toronto. We're an independent academic research group, and our bread and butter is tracking digital threats to civil society. And the part of that that I work on is trying to understand hackers and others, often in the service of governments, who are trying to hack journalists, human rights defenders, politicians, and others. And I have been kind of using those skills in a bit of an exploratory way to look into the Stop the Steal movement, because I thought, well, this is interesting. You know, We've done some work on disinformation. This looks like some pretty domestically pointed disinformation. I wonder where this rhetorical gun goes when the trigger is pulled. That kind of led me to watching the, the sixth. Citizen Lab doesn't usually do crowdsourced research. I don't think we've ever done it before. But what we do do is a lot of sort of careful thinking about the different threats that exist on the internet and that are digital. And what was interesting about this case is that it was really the manifestation of those threats in three dimensions. This has since really been very interesting for me because it turns out there's a lot of there are a lot of people who work on extremism. There are a lot of people who track different kinds of you know racist, identitarian, extreme right movements in the United States. And getting to know them has been one of the really interesting moments of this whole process, finding that there are researchers who for years have been warning that these groups were gaining strength, they were gaining momentum. And so they were not surprised. And in fact, they had been warning everyone that things like this were coming. That was a big and really compelling discovery for me. Talk about the risks and how you mitigate those risks, because it could be a little bit of a of a wild west here. Obviously, you don't want to do kind of digital vigilanteism. You're trying to expose these people in ways that can be helpful to law enforcement, to journalists, to society at large. But at the same time, you, you can't violate the privacy rights of people who are innocent. So what measures do you take to make sure that um, you don't make those kinds of mistakes? Well, this has been a... a- an interesting and you know very quickly evolving process. And right from the beginning, one of the most important things has been to try to model good behavior around this. As people will tell you, anytime there's a big event, there are going to be online sleuths and they're going to go digging. And so it's really important that if you're kind of digging as well and doing some of that digging publicly, that you show people kind of what the guardrails are. And one of the key ones is you must never name a person who is not confirmed by careful journalism or a police report. It's just extremely risky. And so I think one of the really interesting 
things about this case and one of the pieces of sort of lesson that I've learned is that in those early days, it was like Mr. Rogers said, look for the helpers. Everyone wanted to help. People were trying to make sense of what was going on. And this was one way to do that, one way for people all over the country and world to pitch in and try to figure things out. Like, you know, what is the fact that this guy is wearing a baseball cap with an AR-15 superimposed on American flag mean for his identity? Going forward though, the model has really evolved and now it looks much more like a submission form that then goes to the sleuths at Bellingcat, who I'm collaborating with. So moving towards a more mature model with many fewer risks, I think, than the previous one. John, you say you were tracking the Stop the Steal movement for weeks prior months. to January. Months prior to, yeah. well, couldn't be too long because it didn't start till after the November Took election. Right? Well, actually, the, the first inklings of Stop the Steal happened a couple years ago. There was kind of a first dry run by Roger Stone and Ali Alexander, who then became the kind of nexus of one of the two Stop the Steal groups that began in the like handful of days right after the November election. Did they use that phrase, Stop the Steal, or did that emerge after the they election? They did. Yeah. That was the, so they, had, they had the brand. They didn't trademark it, but they had the brand. And right. actually, there's kind of an interesting observation here, and we can talk in a minute about the tracking, but like there are two basic groups that had been injecting effort into the Stop the Steal movement. One was Ali Alexander, who traces his political roots to Roger Stone. The other is the March for Trump crowd, the Kramers, who trace the announcement of their March for Trump and their operation to Steve Bannon's war room. And so there's this kind of weird superposition that I keep wondering about, which is like, were Bannon and Stone each, did they have their preferred component of the Stop the Steal movement? And were they kind of, you know, engaged in low intensity warfare with each other to try to gain control of that movement? The guy, Ali Alexander, uh, his name has popped up quite a bit in recent days. Just, uh, you know, just tell yeah. us who he was and what he was up to and the associations that he had. And also, I just no, just from looking at him, he is a man of color. I don't know what his ethnicity and background is, but I'd be interested in in hearing more about it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if that's relevant, but I guess the you know, the except thing- that it's unusual to see a person of color leading a movement that included you know bands of white supremacists and uh, and anti semites. You know, I think it's these are these are really complicated issues. And one thing that I will just flag is that it is quite interesting that the stop the steal grievance narrative managed to become a very large tent for a lot of different people. So that by the sixth, you had militia groups, you had different kinds of extremist groups, you had hate groups, and they were all kind of arriving in DC on that day. That's fascinating. But to me, it also speaks to the fact that even after the inauguration, this is going to still be an issue. And as much as, you know, DC can be Fortress DC for a couple of days, there's kind of this exceptional situation. There's the person of Donald Trump, um, who's going to keep presumably injecting this rhetoric in. You've got the fact that a lot of the kind of militias going to state houses came from COVID restrictions, which I think are probably going to be a big thing again. You have big economic trouble. And you have the fact that as the Southern Poverty Law Center shows, every time you get a democratic administration, militia activity has a tendency to jump and it just ballooned under Obama. And as people who run sort of, you know, the militia watch groups will tell you some of the militias that showed up in DC, like the Oath Keepers, 
owe their genesis to a period shortly after Obama came into office. And so I think there's a lot of reason to be very concerned with so uh, the, I, I was asking about Ali Alexander, who he oh, is, so sorry. who he is, and what do we know about him? So Ali Alexander is originally Ali Akbar. He has, has been widely reported. He's got some felony convictions, and he has sort of existed as a marginal figure at various times around different conservative causes, and then inserted himself in, and sometimes burned a lot of bridges, so it would appear. In this case, in the early days, he began doing his very best to put his personal brand onto the sort of Stop the Steal protests. He registered a website, stopthesteal.us, tried to drive traffic there, got himself some short codes for sending text messages, and basically built out the infrastructure of a small political tendency that was not really grassroots. We still don't really know where the money was coming from, but he was bouncing all over the country, going to these Stop the Steal rallies, uh, showing up and being present with people who were running for Congress. And the whole time that this was going on, his rhetoric was dialing up. So it went from kind of, you know, like the election was stolen to like, I'm ready to die for this cause, are you? And that escalation mirrors the escalation that was happening in a lot of the other communities that were pointed at the sixth. Alexander is also an interesting case because he's somebody who, even though he's doing the thing, he's also, I think, got a history of overstating his importance in the thing, which may now be something he's ruining. But he very much tries and, you know, sort of like constantly subtweeting the Kramer crowd that actually he's the only legitimate stop the steal, or he was the only legitimate stop the steal operation out there. You know, don't listen to those other folks. You know, that may be in the long run, perhaps a bad choice on his part. But I think, you know, in the months ahead, as we're trying to understand kind of how these movements got put together, it's going to be interesting that some of the people who are at the forefront of them were also super unreliable narrators about their relationship, about their relations to politicians um, and to the Republican Party. I just want to pick up on that. Just one thing you were tracking, you see him dialing up his rhetoric. You see others doing that. In the weeks and days before January 6th, did you have real concerns that there was going to be violence, there was going to be an attack such as we saw? And if so, how is it that our security agent, domestic security agencies, FBI, uh, Homeland Security, and uh, Capitol Police weren't better prepared? Well, what I can tell you is that the people who were experts in extremist groups in the U.S. were sounding the alarm. And the people who spent their days living in the morass of Q were sounding the alarm, and they were doing it publicly. And it sounds like some of those reports, based on news reporting, made their way to Capitol Police and others. I think one of the things that I felt very strongly about when I was tracking the Stop the Steal movement was that it was being kind of dismissed. And it made sense. There weren't a lot of people at a lot of the rallies. They seemed to be losing momentum in their internet traffic based on what I would see. And at the same time, there were a lot of kooks. And I think a lot of people didn't want to give them oxygen and sort of had a sense of inevitability. Well, the election has happened, like there are going to be these grievances, but so what? And I think that we're all having to recalibrate how we think about the real rhetorical risks that have been introduced by this kind of speech in the US. There's a lot of bluster out there. It's sometimes hard to distinguish between what is bluster and what is real. That's the intelligence failure aspect of this. But you've been tracking these people who were at the attack, who were involved in it. But what does that tell you about the operation itself? How organized the attack was? How much planning there was? Were the attackers communicating in real time? What kind of operational security do they have? What do we know so far about 
that aspect of what happened on January 6th. You know, it seems like every hour as I'm reviewing footage, I go back and forth between thinking that this is like the beer gut putsch and that there was actually something, you know, more thoughtful here. Because if you review the footage, you find, of course, thousands of people who had no idea what to do once they were inside the Capitol. It was like they were the tourists, right? And then you have other groups that clearly had some kind of a vision. There's excellent work coming out of NPR analyzing some of the radio apps that these people use. And you can hear them talking about plans and talking about the importance of like conducting a citizen's arrest of elected officials. So there's definitely kind of that stuff lurking out there. The two groups that scare me the most are the kind of militia types who are organized and have been, as they were saying on some of this radio chatter, drilling for this. And then the sort of lone wolf characters who probably exist on the periphery of those groups and may be truly disturbed and really dangerous. That's what I'm afraid of, not the sort of, you know, Instagram tourists who were busy documenting everything about themselves there. But I'm grateful to them for doing it because they often caught on camera the people who are trying to move more discreetly through the crowd. I mean, these things are not mutually exclusive, are they? Because, you know, you you can have, you know, everyone knows that January 6th is the day. You know, there's going to be a big speech by Trump. You know, they know that this event is taking place at the Capitol. So there could be people who are more organized, who have a plan, and and other people who just show up the way they would show up at a Trump rally. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's going to take a long and care. Like, I think that the thing that we have learned from looking at Twitter in the past couple of weeks is a lot of people care and a lot of people are trying to figure out who these people are. But for the actual process of analyzing footage and understanding things, this is going to be a long, long journey. And probably we're going to learn a lot from the sort of criminal investigative side that none of us had much of an idea about. I think it's really important that things are maturing in that direction because these are big and essential questions. How much organization was there? Who was doing the organizing? Who were they reporting to? Who was funding them? What were their connections with the sort of stop the steal folks who you know got the permits to do the demonstration? And then connections on up. I think these are questions for coming coming weeks and months probably. What's your gut as of now as to whether there was a plan by some of these folks to do what they ultimately did, you know, run through the barricades, attack the Capitol Police, go into the, the U.S. Capitol building and perhaps kidnap or or worse to um, uh, lawmakers? Or was it a spontaneous thing that happened after folks got riled up by the rhetoric at the rally? You know, I think this goes back to the question of the many different kinds of people who were there. Certainly folks who are experts, for example, in Q were saying there's going to be an effort to storm the Capitol. And, you know, the folks who've listened to the radio traffic have said, well, it sounds like people are talking about plans. I think in practice, it's going to be devilishly hard to tease these things out. And it's going to take a lot of time. And it's probably good that a lot of that thinking is no longer going on Twitter because, you know, it's not going to be solved with hot takes. John, one of the things that's striking about the reports that are coming out and the arrests of people is, or at least striking to me, maybe not to you, but this uh, large number of ex-military people who have yeah. been been arrested or in some way involved in what happened on January 6th. Clearly, the vast majority of people in the military are loyal, decent citizens. But what do you think accounts for this seemingly disproportionate number of people who have military backgrounds? Well, what I'm not is an expert in like white power movements in the United States. Um, you know, there's some extremely smart people, um, Kathleen Bellew, I hope, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, who wrote Bring the War Home and others who really, you know, I think are the best to speak to this. But what I will observe is that time and time again, as we dig into these people, you find a military background. 
And to me, that speaks to a lot of things. I think the United States has a kind of troubled history in how we help our veterans after they return. And a lot of them are surely looking for better assistance at integrating in society. There are a lot of questions around PTSD there. I think that's a huge conversation that has to happen. There's also another way to look at this. So you take a look at like somebody like, you know, retired Colonel Brock, or as some have called him a terminal Colonel. Here's somebody who seems to have made it kind of good. Left the military after a long career, got some distinctions, had a business, seems to have been a pilot, doing a lot of good work, had a nice house, good looking family. And yet some bug got into his ear and he deflected so far sideways that his vision of what it means to stay true to his oath was to show up on the floor of our democracy with his uh, temporary restraints, wherever he picked them up. And I think that is, boy, that is a reckoning that we have to have as a country to understand what on earth it was that got us to this place. And this to me gets to what I keep thinking about right now, which is how do you do kind of like a reduction in extremism domestically? What are the lessons available that we have for understanding how to do this? And one thing that I just, I keep coming to again and again, are you folks familiar with the Dangerous Speech Project? That's uh, Susan Benish? No, I'm not. No, but oh, I know Susan Benish. Yeah, it's right. a very, it's a very interesting project. And it basically takes as it's, and I'm not an expert in it, but I would refer you to her. But from what I understand it, it takes this idea that, look, there are patterns in how language that includes mention of political violence and violence is normalized. Depersonalizing language is normalized. And you see those in many countries. You saw it before the election violence in Kenya. You saw it in Rwanda. Not that it's always going to lead to genocide, but that we in the US now need to have a way of talking about the rhetorical normalizing that happened. And to do it in a way that doesn't just collapse into a free speech debate, it doesn't just collapse into a conversation about whether or not the speech is First Amendment protected, but the, rather that starts from the point, okay, a lot of the rhetoric that has happened in the past couple of years is deeply harmful, and we need to change the norms around that. And it has to come from others, not just politicians. How is it that we as a society are normalizing that kind of language, because we often in the media will write stories when politicians say outrageous things, but there's some nuances there. What are we doing to normalize that kind of rhetoric? Again, I'm not an expert in rhetoric and not an expert in dangerous speech, but um, I'll point you to one of Susan's op-eds where she points out that part of the challenge is that you know folks like Trump from the very beginning were using even language of violence towards rioter, violence towards protesters in the very early days of their rally. And I think that there's kind of a, you know, I've watched journalists struggle with how to cover and whether they're actually amplifying certain kinds of language when they cover things that Trump has said over the past couple of years. And this seems like a really, these are really deep questions that have to get thought through and I don't have answers, but I think I have an observation that I think a lot of people would share, which is the language of political violence has become something that is no longer shocking when it's heard. It's not shocking when it comes out of the uh, lips of a president or a congressperson. And that's just a very strange thing. And I, I think we have to walk ourselves back from that rhetorical brink. And obviously, you know, every sector of society is going to have to play a role. And there's going to have to be a lot of you know, stock taking within media. Yeah, I, I got to say, I, I was at the Conservative Political Action Conference in, I think it was February 2017, so just early on in Trump's presidency. And that's when I believe it was the first time Trump used the phrase enemy of the people to talk about us, the press, right? And I remember like 
doing a double take? Did he just say that? This is language from the 1930s, Stalinist language. There's a, a scene in um, that documentary that was done about the New York Times coverage of the Trump presidency, yeah. and the camera is on Jeremy Peters, one of their reporters, when Trump says that. And you could see the sort of visceral, you know, head motion when from Peters it blinks when he hears that. And that's, I think, an example mm-hmm. of how the rhetorical, this rhetorical slope we've been on has become normalized because, you know, the next time we heard it, we didn't do a double take. It was just Trump's rhetoric. But it's the kind of rhetoric that could inspire the kind of hatred that we saw on January 6th. But yeah. I want to ask you, you talked about, we were talking minute ago about the military, ex-military folks. And yet we had today uh, or late last night the reports about this 22-year-old woman from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Riley June Williams, who the feds are looking for, who was at the rally and, according to the Fed, the FBI affidavit, was talking about stealing Nancy Pelosi's laptop and sending it to a friend in Russia for sale to the Russian intelligence services, which is pretty shocking on its face. And yet she wasn't ex-military. She worked in a nonprofit that helped disabled folks uh, from Mm -hmm. the media reports. So how do you square, you know, folks like that being involved in this? Does it need to be squared? I mean, I think that the, the way to look at this is a sequence of protections around the Capitol were breached. There was a big crowd with a lot of different kinds of people in it. Some people seem to have a pretty good idea of what they were doing and did a lot of the breaching. And the people who did the breaching, specifically of things like Windows, turns out ex-military, right? Some of the first people who showed up, ex-military. Doesn't mean that they all were. And doesn't mean that there was one grand plan. I think that would be a, a, it would be a mistake to try to find that, that organization. I think that like so many movements in the history of you know, the, the last 20th century, small groups often operate within large movements and protests and riot and may use those as cover. I think we're still learning a lot, but I think, you know, that sort of we don't need yet a unified theory of that protest. What we need is an understanding of what on earth the sort of rhetoric and logic was in the United States that got us to this very strange place. And we also need to take a hard look at some specific communities that I think pose specific risks to our national security. One is, you know, obviously like um, veterans in active duty who um, may be part of extremist movements. Another is, you know, extremist movements like Proud Boys. But then there seems to be, you know, I don't know, the the cannon fodder of a movement like this, which is the huge numbers of people who buy this disinformation, believe these conspiracy theories, QAnon and others, and fall down these rabbit holes. I mean, that seems to be in some ways the larger problem because movements like these are sustained by, you know, huge numbers of people, millions of people. Huge numbers of people. Yeah, I agree. And I don't, I mean, I feel comforted that some of the people who seem to be doing the most troubling things, you know, are now, you know, known to law enforcement and have been arrested. But I don't think this is a law enforcement problem for America. I see this as a problem that lives at the level of society and norms, and we have to de-radicalize ourselves. And there will always be angry men who have it in them to beat a police officer 
or to break things. These people always exist in society, but we just can't have a situation where those people have some kind of a movement as top cover or a movement that sees them as necessary muscle to some political end. That's, that's where the danger lies. What have you seen since January 6th and how worried are you about what can happen this week? Oh, I'm so concerned. And I think that, you know, even after January 6th, folks who spend their days living in sort of digital worlds where these extreme groups operate were surfacing crazy stuff. They were surfacing calls to violence in local capitals at the and you know at the national capital. A lot of deplatforming has happened. Parlor is offline, but is coming back apparently um, entirely served through Russian infrastructure, which is somebody made a joke about whether that would happen. And I guess sometimes jokes are, are right, but I think that the evidence that there are people who have really crazy motivations, who were exercised by what happened, who liked it, and who think that you know it's time to take another another swing, those people are out there, and that's what I'm very concerned about, specifically around the inauguration. Again, not a counterterrorism expert, not a domestic extremism expert, but I keep running into that stuff, and if I am, I'm sure they are too. And then the question going forward is, after the inauguration, how do we get back from this brink? John, you said you're worried about what's going to happen potentially uh, inauguration day. But looking ahead, when this first happened, you know, people began asking the question is, is this the end of something or is it the beginning of something? Is it the sort of death rattle of some very bad, dark side of Trumpism? Or is it the beginning of some dark new age uh, that we're going to be going into? And I I wonder, first of all, how you would answer that question. I I think I know. (laughs) But secondly, you talked about de-radicalization, and we're going to have to de-radicalize, in some sense, our society. So what does that entail? That is a very complicated proposition, I guess. You know, I would say, like, as the French say, ce n'est pas adieu, ce n'est que au revoir, right? Like, we'll see you again. And my, my take on this movement, you know, I've had the, uh, I've been very fortunate to be able to connect with people who've spent years and decades tracking these movements in the United States. And I can tell you that the sense I get from them is clear. This is a beginning. And I am, again, not an expert in these movements, but what I will observe is that if you look at what happened with militias in the United States in the past, right, post-Oklahoma City bombing, it's my understanding that it was discovered that a sort of heavy-duty crackdown sometimes makes that problem worse. And, you know, you need a kind of a society and government-wide response that doesn't just look at this like, you know, there's some extremists and they have to be dealt with. I just think that we're at a very scary historical moment we have for the first time in, I don't know how long, a president who refuses to attend the transfer during the inauguration. You've got you know this history of crazy rhetoric. You have, I mean, I was looking at footage from inside the Senate chamber and uh, you know, there's a moment where some guy is rifling a desk and he's like, uh, you know, I think this is what Cruz would want us to do. So I think we're okay. You know, when people feel that the political rhetoric is authorizing and enabling and frankly encouraging and protecting that, I think we're in trouble. And I just remember those early rallies when Trump was saying, and I was inspired by something that Susan Benish said in in an op-ed, when Trump was saying, you know, I'll pay for their bail, right? That is the normalization of violent rhetoric. And for years, people were saying, well, you know, let's not, America is different, right? We've got lots of safeguards, there are lots of guardrails, and this is just talk. And it turns out, talk over time, even if it is not the intention of Ted Cruz to do something terrible, makes room for people who do and who want to. And I'm just, I'm, I'm terribly concerned. 
Well, it is a, a very scary and very dangerous time, as you say. If there's any silver lining, it's conversations like this where people such as yourself um, have been studying the root causes of these problems for a long time and tracking the people who are behind the rhetoric and the violence. Um, and so maybe we can at least be hopeful that uh, more people like yourself and your organization continue to do this work that will uh, solve some of these problems over time. Here's my, my last thought. You know, Mr. Rogers said, look for the helpers. And I have been astounded at the sheer volume of people who, you know, contributed to some of the early Twitter sleuthing that I and so many others were doing. And I'm now equally astounded at how many talented people there are in the sort of study of domestic extremism who've been saying warnings consistently for years. And my hope is that some of those voices are going to start being taken very seriously. And I think it's also <laughs> doing this kind of work when things are happening very fast. I'm just very fortunate to have really smart colleagues and to have a lot of smart peers in my world who gave me advice and feedback and who'd watched crowdsourcing things happen before. Um, and I think that, that that was really important. And my hope is that you know the next time something like this comes around, we all have a better sense of you know how to go about engaging with it. Well, John, I want to thank you for joining us, and um, we will be watching your Twitter feed where you are posting all of this. What is your Twitter feed, by the way, for our listeners? J-S-R-A-I-L-T-O-N. And your profile okay. says, Chasing Digital Badness. <laughs> Keep up the good work. I'll try. And uh, if you guys can send some sleep my way, uh, much appreciated. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we'll will do. Thanks a lot.